From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. I'm Andrew Lee. I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Oxford um, in the history of science and medicine. And I'm examining early efforts to computerize medical diagnosis and decision-making and kind of the broader changes to medical thought and practice that emerged out of those efforts. So as part of this project, I'm thinking about a number of different topics and themes. Um, I'm interested in the role of the computer in transforming organic disease concepts into concept of, concepts of disease that were numerical and statistical. I'm interested in the way in which diagnostic programs forced physicians and engineers to think in new ways about the nature of clinical reasoning and how doctors think. And then I'm interested in the relationship between biomedical computing and larger trends in mid to late 20th century medicine, um, including rationalization, standardization, and kind of the evidence-based medicine movement. So at the Hagley, I'm looking at the Vladimir Zwerikin papers, and listeners may know that Zwerikin was a pioneer in television technology. He was the director of the Electronics Research Laboratory at the Radio Corporation of America, and there he invented the iconoscope and the cathode ray tube that made electronic television possible. Um, in 1954, he retires at the age of 72, but very soon after, he becomes obsessed with the emerging field of medical electronics. And as a result of that, he becomes the founding director of the Medical Electronics Center at the Rockefeller Institute. And it's there that he first begins thinking about the application of computers to the problem of medical diagnosis. He sets up a interdisciplinary research group comprised of physicians, engineers, statisticians, and they meet on a roughly monthly basis to discuss every conceivable aspect of computer aids to the problem of diagnosis and decision-making in medicine. And within about two years, they had created a preliminary computer program that was able to make diagnoses in the field of hematology. So it's that project and that program that I'm interested in. One thing that I've been thinking a lot about during my stay here at Hagley has been the topic of standardization. So Zwerikin and his colleagues selected the field of hematology because they believed that it was a field that was objective, numerical, and straightforward in ways that other areas of medicine um, were not. For example, um, diagnoses of hematological diseases are often based on laboratory tests, things like blood cell counts and the like. But once they actually start creating their diagnostic program, they come to realize that the situation is far more complex than they had initially imagined. As part of creating the program, they set out to generate a database on the frequencies of signs and symptoms in different blood diseases. And in the process of surveying the world literature to get this database, they encounter what they characterize as a state of, what, of information anarchy. So they find that 
medical researchers, rather than providing exact figures, are saying vague things like, many patients have this symptom. And so how do you quantify that descriptor of many? Um, that's one of the problems. Another problem that they encounter is that the same disease is called by different names by different researchers and physicians. So von Willebrand disease, a, um, a form of hemophilia, is described by 15 different names they discover at the time, and myeloid metaplasia uh, has 25 different possibilities in the medical terminology at the time. Um, another problem that they encounter is that of extracting information from the medical record. If a symptom is not listed in the medical record, does that mean that the patient doesn't have the symptom, or does it mean that the physician simply failed to look for that symptom in the patient. So needless to say that um, these researchers started to become intensely interested in the project of standardization um, of knowledge, of practices, and of terminology in the field of medicine. A lot of the records are of just his letters to these colleagues and others on these problems of standardization, and those are it's always nice to find private letters because you get insight into what people are thinking privately. Um, so that's been an exciting source. Um, also, what's been great are just the images that I've found at the collections here. Um, they're better than any images I've found at the many other archives I've visited so far. So that's been another highlight. Great pictures of him with all different kinds of instrumentation in medical electronics. So he invented many different devices in the field. So something like a rate, something that was called a radio pill that a patient would swallow, and then it would transmit um, information about the um, digestive tract of patients, which was kind of known to be an area that was difficult to probe for obvious reasons. So yeah, things like that. The project recruited uh, hematologists soon after it started. But those who chose the field of hematology were not hematologists. And one of the hematologists involved in the project, Ralph Engel, later quipped that this was kind of a, a reflection of the phenomenon that everyone thinks that everyone else's job is easier than their own. So if you're not a hematologist, the field of hematology looks easy to you. Um, so he's corresponding with people like Ralph Engel. Um, he's corresponding with statisticians like Max Woodbury, um, physicians, and uh, and, and there was a whole international movement to try to get medical electronics kind of on the radar. And so a lot of his work was kind of in organizing the international field. Um, and there he's corresponding mostly with physicians who were involved in that effort, physicians and engineers. But the project was very much about getting engineers and physicians to talk to each other and breaking down barriers, um, breaking down those professional and language barriers between those fields. There's a whole variety of different projects. I think almost all of them have physicians affiliated with them, and I think most of them were probably initiated by physicians with some kind of engineering bent. Um, the reaction of physicians in the US was highly variable. There were many who were really exercised about the idea that you could um, computerize what they considered to be the art of medicine. Um, so, so that whole tension between the art and science of medicine 
um, is a major theme that comes up over and over again. Most people who are involved in efforts to computerize medical diagnosis, they single out the resistance of certain groups of physicians as the largest barrier to getting um, to getting computers actually implemented into medical practice. So it was definitely um, a major point of concern. The one that was identified by Zwerkin as the most resistant were general practitioners. So basically, um, he, he said that, uh, yeah, that, that the problem was not with physicians who had been involved in scientific research in some way or another, but general practitioners. Um, as an interesting point of contrast to the um, project spearheaded by Zwerkin and his colleagues, there was another project um, run out of Cornell by a psychiatrist called Keeve Broadman. And, so, and what's interesting about that case is that Broadman was, uh, first he was trained in psychiatry, which is kind of counterintuitive that a psychiatrist would be involved in projects of computerizing medical diagnosis and decision-making. Uh, but he was also interested in fields that like psychosomatics. Um, and in, in the late 1940s, he's involved, he basically helps, he's the major force in creating what's called the Cornell Medical Index, which is a questionnaire that has 195 yes or no questions. And the goal of the Cornell Medical Index is to capture a snapshot of the total patient. So to get a sense of the patient um, in context and the patient's overall medical problem. So it's not just a narrow field of hematology. So he kind of imagined the Cornell Medical Index as offering a bird's eye view to the worm's eye view of the medical specialist. And this and from, and from uh, the Cornell Medical Index, he creates what he, is called the medical data screen, which is basically a way of deriving diagnoses from the patient data that was collected from the Cornell Medical Index. Um, so that's, that's kind of another, another one of the case studies that I'm looking at. Um, but it kind, of, it kind of highlights a number of the interesting contrasts and debates um, within, the, within the different researchers in, the, in this field. So the first demonstration of the program was in 19, in December 10th, 1957, um, at, in Camden, New Jersey, at the RCA plants there on a Bismack computer. Um, and over the following decades, the project evolves in drastic ways over time. Um, and Zworkin drops off of the project eventually, and it's kind of taken over by Ralph Engelet. At, who is based at Cornell. Um, and the aims of the project change over this time, the techniques that they're trying to use and the methods that they're using change over time. Um, uh, eventually by the 1980s, it's, they, they tr um, it it's never, they're never able to implement it into actual clinical practice despite many efforts to do so. Um, and uh, they basically eventually uh, yeah, they eventually just end the project. Um, when trying to diagnose what went wrong, one of the interesting um, points that was made by um, Angle about the project was that he was speculating, well, perhaps there's not really a need for um, a computer program in medical diagnosis because 
the bulk of what a physician does is not diagnose disease. It's managing patients. So the fundamental task of medicine is that of patient management, not of diagnosis. So physicians are working with patients, many of whom already have disease, and you're, and you're working with those patients over time. It became known as HEME, the, the program, um, in the 1970s. Over time, it becomes a terminal. Um, so you input patient data into that terminal, a physician would. And these researchers are actually, actually very attentive to problems of that interface between computers and physicians. And Engel tried to incorporate it into, into kind of the medical curriculum at Cornell as, a, as an elective course, basically, where students could basically use the program to kind of check their own diagnostic reasoning. So they could think about why they were making certain diagnoses on the, on what, on the basis of what data and, um, and compare that with what the, the computer program was, was showing. But he found that not even many students elected to take the course. Um, so certainly part of the problem was just one of general computer literacy at the time. Um, the, challenge of, the challenge of knowing whether or not the computer is successful is a really challenging, almost philosophical question because um, you have to have a point of comparison. So the, the computer has some kind of diagnosis. Um, if you're going to compare that against diagnoses made by physicians, if there's a discrepancy between the computer-generated genera computer diagnosis and the physician-generated diagnosis, how do you know which one is right and which one is wrong? How do you know that either of them is right? Um, so that's, that's certainly a problem that they're thinking about. They decided basically that um, they had diagnoses, hospital, hospital cases that had already been diagnosed by experts in, in the field and assumed that those were correct. Um, other, other examples at the time, I think, also used kind of case studies, basically, that I'm not sure if they were real cases, but they were made by experts as kind of paradigmatic, you know, examples of a, of a given disease presented, presenting and a given symptom to see if the computer could come up with the correct diagnosis of that disease. It's virtually never implemented other than kind of in pilot, um, pilot tests kind of at the various research centers that it's developed at. Their goal was not to make a profit. Their goal was to create a medical technology that they thought would be useful and that would solve many pressing issues of the time, including problems, what they perceived to be like physician and medical personnel shortages, rising costs of medicine, um, things like this. They thought that this was a technology that could help solve some of those problems in profound ways. Um, there were certainly considerations about the role of different companies and corporations in distribution, but yeah, it never got to that point. <laughs> yeah, the patient perspective is really hard to get at notoriously in 
the history of medicine. So, you know, unfortunately, I haven't had any any good um, sources that reveal kind of patient perspectives of what's happening. The closest one gets to kind of getting the patient perspective is as filtered through the researchers who are doing their own kind of internal tests about the extent, about the ways in which visit, uh, patients are experience, experiencing um, the program. There they report that um, there are minimal, no to minimal concerns among patients. That's, it's, that's a very filtered, uh, very, very filtered uh, kind of view into that. When thinking about like even attitudes of physicians to computers and medicine, um, what I've thought a lot about as I'm going through sources is the extent to which the published perspectives are actually representative of views. If you're kind of apathetic about something, you're not going to pen an editorial, you know, saying, oh, you know, this is fine. Or you're only you're only going to write an editorial if if you're really exercised about um, about the technology, whether in a positive or negative way. So the valence of those editorials is kind of very much skewed in the very positive or ne very negative direction. So you read editorials, you know, saying that. This is totally going to destroy the, the craft and the art of medicine. It's going to dehumanize. Um, it's going to dehumanize the medicine. And by contrast, you have editorials that are saying, no, this is going to rationalize medicine in ways that um, it has never been before. It's going to create a science out of medicine. Um, but the middle ground, like there's definitely a middle ground there that is not representative, that is not well represented um, in um, in those editorials. I have seen letters by, written by physicians to different people working on different projects um, in computerizing medical diagnosis. And there you can get some insight into kind of more intermediate perspectives where physicians are just writing, hmm, that's really interesting. Um, could you tell me more about this? Um, things like that. Um, in the case of the Cornell Medical Index and the medical data screen, there the patients are experiencing it a little bit more directly because they're actually having to fill out a physical questionnaire, um, which is interesting to think about the fact that um, that in when when the Cornell when the Cornell Medical Index came onto the scene in 1949, patients hadn't really been exposed to medical questionnaires. Nowadays, a medical questionnaire is totally par for the course. But at the time, this was this was a paper technology that would have seen seemed unfamiliar to many patients. Um, but even then, your their 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 interaction with the medical data screen is through that paper technology, not the computer. What got me interested in the project was reading, you know, contemporary medical journals and even lay publications uh, discussing kind of contemporary efforts to computerize medical diagnosis. And throughout all of these sources, um, often is the claim, there's a claim that, and an emphasis that these are kind of novel enterprises. So I started thinking, or I started wondering, just having done the history of science as an undergraduate, the extent to which these were truly novel, um, when did these efforts start? And um, and when did kind of the conversations and debates that we're having about them today, when did those start as well? Um, there's definitely a, a, 
great enthusiasm about the power of medical technology to solve all kinds of problems, um, both technological problems, uh, institutional problems, and even social problems. But many at the time also do point out that they're not. Like Keith Broadman, for example, the creator of the medical data screen at Cornell, he points out that you know it's not a magic bullet, um, that it's just another tool in the physician's armamentarium. It's difficult to interpret that because in a way it's so wrapped up in the politics of clinical authority. Like to say that is a way of sort of getting reluctant physicians on your side. And so the sincerity of claims like that is hard to evaluate um, as a historian, but it's definitely an interesting dynamic. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a tricky thing to think about because the technology has changed in so many dramatic ways just in the last 10 years. So making claims from historical cases is always a tricky one, especially when that rate of change is so great. Um, but it does orient one to think about questions that maybe one was not thinking about before, which I think is an important thing to do. So it's more of just um, kind of filling out the narrative that I had, because I've done research on the tail end of the project. And so this kind of gave the gave insight into the kind of early origins of the project. And I had kind of the framework of what that looked like, but this is just kind of filled it in with nice, nice details. Even by the early 1950s, he is interested in medical technology to the extent that he's starting to look at projects of using television and applying television to medicine. So one of the things he does, for example, is have a, um, install a television camera kind of above an operating table. And there are great images of this at the Hagley. And the idea was that students and trainees would be able to watch from angles that they would not be able to see if there weren't the television in the operating room and that you'd be able to have a larger, um, a larger audience for different um, procedures that were being done by kind of expert surgeons. For Zvorkin, the this was just one small sliver of kind of his overall project. He was kind of, he was interested in medical electronics generally. And so I gave the example of the radio pill um, of television in medicine um, and his efforts kind of as uh, as a pioneer trying to get medical electronics um, organized internationally. So he created um, a federation and an international institute to kind of host conferences internationally and um, and get and get research teams that weren't talking um, into conversation with one another. Um, so yeah, he was definitely a tireless figure in the field, um, especially at that age. It is interesting. There are divergent views about what the goals of the project are, of the goals of computerizing um, diagnosis in the field of hematology. Zworkin, who is just a really practically minded person, is really interested in implementing medical technology. And he has all these ideas for creating different centers in the United States and international to serve as clearinghouses and to kind of development centers for different technologies. And he perceives this project to be in exactly that vein as something that would eventually, um, eventually be implemented. 
Others who were involved, however, described the project as one of kind of more fundamental basic research into the nature of clinical decision-making. So there, there's a, a, a difference in how people are perceiving what they're doing, um, even as they're working on the same project. Another interesting example of this are um, at the first presentation of the um, program in 1957, um, it's noted that the physicians who are involved in the project are really awestruck by the ability, the kind of the technical abilities of the Bismack computer. By contrast, the engineers are are really struck by the uh, by the ability of the computer to make diagnoses. So they, um, what's what impresses them about the project is what their own specialty, what isn't their own specialty. You know, even though like Herbert Simon was working in AI and computing pretty early, um, these very early efforts did not situate themselves um, in comparison to AI. The discussions of artificial intelligence in medicine kind of really start to take off in the 1970s. In 1980s, and there, there's a project at Stanford called Mycin, run by Edward Shortliff. Um, the cybernetics thread comes through in an interesting way in the project run by Keith Broadman at Cornell on the medical data screen. Um, what's interesting about Broadman is that what kind of gets him in, interested in the his whole project is that he's diagnosed at a pretty early age with multiple sclerosis, and he writes to um, Norbert Wiener, kind of the father of cybernetics. And he basically says, my experience with this disease had le has led me to believe that basically human cognitive processes are kind of simple and formalizable because he had noticed that um, his um, physical and cognitive abilities had declined very um, progressively, and he describes it as if wires of a communication system were being cut. Um, and so as a result, he, he start, becomes to be interested in the ways in which decision-making in medicine might be able to be formalized and mathematized and ultimately computerized. So he's, he's definitely can be situated within the kind of cybernetics world. Because he has MS, he's housebound. And as a result of that, he conducts all of his research by correspondence. So he's working through these ideas and he's, and he's doing it through correspondence. So conversations that are normally happening, you know, in office like this, that would be invisible to the historian are totally overt. Although I think that's, yeah, that's truly exceptional. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Stacks. For more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.